Welcome to Dr. Michelle's Wild Warrior Podcast, the official podcast for all things body, brain, and soul. Dr. Michelle is a naturopathic physician, licensed acupuncturist, martial artist, yoga teacher, and aims to model optimal health. And now, here's Dr. Michelle. Welcome to Dr. Michelle's Wild Warrior Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. And you can follow me on YouTube, um, subscribe, Michelle M. Mattingly, or you can find me on iTunes um, and also on Spotify. And those uh, handles are Dr. Michelle's Wild Warrior Podcast. So please subscribe, and I appreciate you being in my audience today. I have some interesting things, hopefully, to talk about and to get you thinking and informed and questioning things and hopefully um, making really robust decisions for yourself about your health and your family's health and that of our community and our planet, ultimately. So thank you again for joining me today. It's an honor to have you in my audience, and I always welcome your feedback and your commentary, and if you have suggestions of topics you want me to cover, please feel free to reach out. So I want to start today by telling you a little bit of a story that will uh, segue into some of the topics I want to cover in my um, podcast today. So Uh, When I was in naturopathic school, which I did the dual degree program, so four years of naturopathic medicine study, and then um, two years, well, they were combined into six years, essentially, of my master's in science of Oriental medicine. And so it was a six-year program. um, And so in my fourth year of school, I was ready to have a child. And so, um, it actually was a pretty supportive environment at NUNM. And so, and a lot of people were doing it. So I went ahead and decided that would be a good thing to add into my life. And it was, of course, she's a wonderful child, my oldest, um, And I admittedly was a bit of a purist at that point in my training and really uh, wanted to do things naturally, of course, and had hired a midwife who was wonderful. She was affiliated with our school and she was a really awesome human being. And, you know, as life does, sometimes the best laid plans end up um, getting derailed sometimes. And so that's what happened to me. So, and, and with, you know, life, death, birth, all of these things, there's a a lot of mystery and a lot of, uh, unique challenges to those things. And, um, so my, my intended birth kind of got a little bit derailed and, and I had to go with the flow a little bit. So essentially what happened was I was about 38 weeks pregnant and had just seen my midwife and everything was looking pretty good, except my blood pressure had crept up just a tiny bit and she was, you know, monitoring me and I, um, started to have some right upper quadrant pain, um, just kind of like right below my right ribs and I was getting nauseous. And so she decided to come check on me, um, And, you know, my blood pressure had actually gone up a lot at that point. And with the symptoms I was presenting with, she was concerned. And so she wanted to take me to the hospital. 
And I was like, wait, I'm supposed to have my baby shower today. <laughs> I have a new shirt. Um, and so that obviously didn't happen. And I went to the hospital because that's where I needed to be. And so I was admitted. Um, and my, uh, my body was showing signs of what's called help syndrome, which is a severe form of preeclampsia. Again, the high, the high blood pressure we already knew about. And then they drew some labs and my um, platelets were dropping and my liver enzymes were elevating. Um, so help stands for hemolytic anemia, elevated liver enzymes and low platelets. And I was showing signs of of most of those things. So I was admitted and, um, assigned a very, um, awesome actually MD who is a perinatologist kind of specializes in extreme situations. And of course I didn't feel that bad. I, you know, I felt a little bit nauseous, but otherwise I didn't feel like I was terribly sick and, um, he, you know, thought I was not in a great way. So <laughs> anyway, but he was open to my, um, you know, my desires in trying to do, uh, at least a vaginal birth, but preferably a natural birth. And again, I was a bit naive to this whole experience. And so, um, he let me bring in another midwife from our school who was also an acupuncturist to try and see if we could get labor going. And he did like a mesoprostol, um, suppository to try and get my cervix to do its thing and just try and see if we could get labor started and, and see what happens from there. So, and then he was monitoring my labs and everything to make sure I was still okay. And eventually I was not okay. <laughs> so a little bit of labor started, but barely anything. And, and my child was doing just fine, but my body was tanking essentially. And, um, normal platelet count is usually like 200,000 to 300,000, somewhere in there. And mine had dropped, um, within that day all the way down to 19,000. And that's concerning because, um, there's a lot of things that can happen out of that. One of which is DIC disseminated intravascular coagulation. And I was kind of well on my way to that being an issue. So luckily the treatment or ramifications for, um, dealing with this was for my baby to be born. And so they decided that I needed to get, um, to go under general anesthesia and have a C-section, which is what ended up happening. And she was healthy and vibrant. And I, um, after, having never really had any medications in my life and then being, uh, sedated and under general and then on a morphine drip when I woke up, <laughs> it was kind of intense, but, uh, you know, I, once I came to, she was doing fine and, uh, my body was going to start to recover too. So luckily, um, it, that experience helped me really appreciate the benefits of Western medicine, of course, and because they literally saved my life. And then also, um, I just, you know, really was grateful for the fact that there was an answer to this problem that I was facing this health condition. And the answer was for my baby to be born because then my body would stop reacting in that way. 
So the reason I bring this up is because there was a physician, um, and I talked about this a little bit in my last podcast, but there was a physician in Florida who received um, one of the injections for COVID-19. And uh, he ended up having um, a similar, it was called ITP, but a similar kind of um, health event where his platelets tanked and actually his went all the way down to zero over time, which is really, um, almost impossible and, and was in his case to come and recover from. So, uh, there was another physician, uh, uh, who reviewed his case, who really did feel like the vaccine had caused this reaction for his body whether it was to the PEG, the um, lipid nanoparticles that surround the mRNA or what, I don't know. But um, basically, he did not have recourse like I did. And they tried um, a lot of things. He was seen by a lot of different physicians and, you know, the best care because he was an MD himself and was connected. But um, And he was really trying to do the right thing by receiving this injection. So... Unfortunately, he passed away because um, he ended up having a hemorrhagic stroke because he couldn't clot, and that's what our platelets help us do. So um, my point in that is I have been asked by a lot of people like what my opinion is about the, these two um, therapies, and I am very concerned. And, and one of my concerns stems from the fact that once... Um, once you take this injection, you cannot remove that from your system. I mean, I had the option with my pregnancy story to, you know, there was recourse. Like I said, um, me having my child was the answer to that problem. And my platelets were able to kind of recover after a little bit of time and intervention, obviously. But, um, so I'm really concerned because I think that we don't have long-term studies. Uh, there's no way we could at this point because it's only been a year since um, the COVID pandemic really hit us. And um, many of these, the trial data was kind of fast-tracked and actually the, the Moderna and Pfizer trials are still um, technically in effect. One was supposed to end in 2022 and the other in 2023. Um, and also the placebo controls in those studies are being offered, um, the injections, you know, also, so, um, we won't have those comparative, uh, placebo, um, you know, uh, people, patients, um, to compare, you know, the, the people who've been vaccinated and those who did not receive it. So, those are some concerning issues in my opinion. And, um, one of the other subjects that I think is worth speaking about is what's called pathogenic, pathogenic priming or, um, antibody dependent enhancement or ADE. And these are easily, uh, researched. They have some historical research on them, um, specifically around coronavirus, uh, vaccine attempts before, and um, this is what's called a messenger RNA uh, genetic therapy. Essentially, it's not technically the same as a regular vaccine where we have attenuated or live or, um, 
you know, inactivated virus that's stimulating the immune response. In this case, the messenger RNA is um, taken into our cells and it is coated with what's called a lipid nanoparticle or PEG. Um, and there's some speculation, and I think that's probably accurate, that the PEG itself is what's causing a lot of these kind of overactive anaphylactic potentially immune responses. And possibly some of the neurological issues we've seen too, like Bell's palsy um, and seizures, those might be a similar um, problem and, and, and reactivity to that stimulus in the body. But again, we don't have enough trial data and long-term studies to understand exactly what's going on. And so that's concerning to me because... Every human being is an individual with their own health history, their unique genetic makeup, their environmental exposures, their stressor responses, their nutrient levels, um, and their vulnerabilities. And so this is being pushed on the, the general public, of course, uh, with, I think, good intention, but unfortunately, it's not a one-size-fits-all answer. And it's concerning to me that anybody who's questioning um, or raising concerns or seeing the concerns and the side effects and the adverse events and asking about them and trying to figure out if there's connections um, is potentially being silenced or censored or discredited. I mean, we're seeing a lot of that as well. And that's, um, that's really not how science works. I mean, it's not, um, believing in the science isn't really a thing because, um, science is ever changing. And if it weren't, we would still be practicing some of the you know, detrimental things or using some of the medications that were dangerous in our history. And so luckily it's an ever changing kind of beast. Um, and in order to change it and improve it, we have to keep researching. We have to keep understanding the data. We have to have these really open conversations and dialogues and I'm not seeing that happen. And I think that's really um, concerning because Ultimately, um, we need all the great minds kind of hashing it out and discussing things so that we can keep people safe um, from the medications themselves. Um, and then obviously, you know, as healthy as they can be with the various you know, pathogens that we're going to experience as human beings on this planet. So to continue um, on pathogenic priming and ADE, I am concerned about that being a big factor as we progress with this, um, these medications, you know, in the, in the larger population as we move forward. And one of the issues that we've seen in the past from some of the research attempts to do an mRNA vaccine before was, uh, when, either test subjects, whether they were animals or humans, when they were, uh, injected with the medication, you know, they seemed to do okay. And then when they were exposed to the wild virus out in nature, whether from another person or, you know, it's circulating in the population, basically what happened was their, um, the disease process became really intense. And in some of the animal trials, actually, 
animals died from it um, because their immune system, you know, kind of went into hyperdrive and their bodies just couldn't handle the cascade of events, the cytokine storms, et cetera. And so that's something that we can't really know from this short period of time that the, um, these injections and these medications have been available. So that is another concerning issue. And it's certainly a topic that can be pretty easily searched for some of the older studies, but I feel like we're going to see some issues cropping up as many of the folks who've been, um, who have taken these injections get exposed to the circulating coronaviruses, um, you know, cause not necessarily SARS-CoV-2, but other coronaviruses can trigger that, um, ADE response as well. So that's something to be mindful of when you're making this kind of decision for yourself and for, and for your family. So, um, let's move away from that subject for a little bit and, uh, talk about lockdowns, another controversial topic and something that seems to be the, uh, main recourse for quote, containing this virus. Uh, we've seen, you know, governments across the entire world kind of jump on board with this lockdown idea. And I have read a lot of studies, um, uh, to their discredit, essentially to the effectiveness of doing mass lockdowns and never before has this been a, a recourse in any sort of epidemic that we've experienced in our past. Um, so that in and of itself is pretty telling. And in fact, the CDC's data and the WHO, they did not have lockdowns as one of their courses of action for any sort of epidemic experience. Um, that wasn't part of the plan essentially until, uh, last year. So, um, the, the problem I have with it among many, well, I'm going to discuss many of the problems I have with it actually. And I think most of this is data supported. The majority of it is, and there's many, many, many research studies showing the ill effects that we're causing from the measures taken against this virus. And unfortunately, in my opinion, uh, based on a lot of the research I've been doing and the data I've read, uh, the the measures themselves have really caused the greatest harm. And we have some comparative situations with certain countries that didn't take major lockdown measures and a few States that limited and minimized their, um, their kind of authoritarian, uh, control of, of the population. And they actually fared, uh, pretty comparably to the rest of you know, the other uh, nations or other states that, that took more extreme measures. And so I think that's really important to factor in. And then also, um, because I, I, I'm certainly not a COVID denier and I'm certainly not, um, you know, of the mindset to let her rip and just let everybody fall ill. Um, we definitely need to take measures to protect the vulnerable and amongst our population, and as I've mentioned before, to kind of address the underlying issues of health and disease in our population, especially here in the United States, I think that's a big factor that's made us more vulnerable. Um, 
And also, you know, the planetary issues that we're facing, whether it's toxicity of our environments um, because of, you know, pesticide use and big agriculture, um, the poor nutritional status of many human beings these days and, you know, lack of mobility, lack of physical exercise, lack of time out in nature, lack of human connection. All of those things play a big role to kind of the undercurrent of this, um, the fallout of this pandemic and its, its subsequent measures. So, um, in my opinion, the lockdown measures have not been about public health. Uh, if they were, there would have been a lot of data supporting their efficacy, and there hasn't been. In fact, much of the data that's like emerged over time, as we've had this year to unfold, has been the opposite. And um, so if it were about public health, you know, then, then it would be kind of a broader view of the health of our entire community and our population, but it's become this kind of, um, single focus, you know, just deal with the virus itself, but not look at all the, the consequences that those measures have, have, um, caused in our population and to the public health. So we've seen an increase in suicides, in domestic violence, in poverty and homelessness, in um, starvation, unfortunately. We've seen an increase in deaths from all-cause mortality. We've seen people delay um, important treatments and um, you know, like cancer treatment and, um, exams that were relevant to those, you know, to, to helping them have better health. We've seen people avoid going to the hospital for heart attacks and strokes, and then subsequently die because of them. We've seen increases in depression and anxiety, and we've seen huge, um, increases in overdoses and addiction problems. And then we've actually, and this is probably one of the most devastating things in my opinion, um, we've seen deaths from loneliness and despair and our elders have been kind of cast away, um, and left to die alone. And I find that absolutely, um, unconscionable and, uh, really just a complete disservice to our human nature and the importance of life and death and these cycles of life um, we must, we must change that pattern and, and figure out a way to support each other as human beings and to love one another and to be there for people during these challenging times of transition from life to death. Um, and then obviously the huge effects on our younger generation, I am so distraught by what I've seen in you know, in my patients who are younger teenagers, um, they've really been struggling and just watching this happen in our community. Um, kids who are isolated. I mean, my own kids have fared pretty well, but it's still taking a big toll on them. Um, and I'm grateful that they, you know, have the support they need and they're resilient human beings, but, uh, it's still, you know, withered away at them a little bit as well. And we are seeing that just in a ubiquitous fashion, the damage this is doing to our, our youth 
And they are our future generation. I mean, they're the ones who are going to turn this ship around. And we should be doing everything we can to support their health and longevity because they're the future, literally, of our planet. And we need them um, to thrive. So that is just really heart-wrenching to me. And I don't feel like the... um, these measures have had any sort of benefit aside from possibly in the first few weeks when we were really supposed to just take the 15 days to flatten the curve, right? Uh, I do feel like at that time we didn't know enough. We, we were, it was new. Um, there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of concern. And then pretty soon thereafter, we started to see the reality of the situation. And of course it was affecting people's lives and people were dying, but, um, the population that was at risk were the elders and people with underlying conditions for the most part, they were certainly not our children. And, you know, to have schools just now reopening in some places and some places still not is absolutely devastating to me and to those children that are affected. Uh, So sadly, I think the fallout of these types of measures are really going to be with us for a long time. And and we're going to continue to see the negative effects um, that they've had on our population So, and then just to touch on, um, one of the things that's been challenging for me to kind of understand and, and to, um, just almost to have to embrace is the fact that things have been become so polarized and so essentially, and there's, and so politicized, you know, so, um, I think that it's such a nuanced issue. Health always is and public health even more so because we're talking about a bigger picture of things. And I have found that, um, when I've been speaking out and I'm, you know, willing to do that because I think it's really too important of an issue to not, but, um, I have found that people make assumptions about, me or anybody else that, that speaks out about certain things. And they presume, you know, that because I'm an advocate for freedom and, um, you know, the freedom to move about and to operate our businesses and to be in community and to make adult choices for ourselves about our own health, that I'm somehow, you know, in, um, an extreme right wing type of, (laughs) of camp and four or five years from now, or even next year, potentially a lot of people are going to wake up kind of and be like, Oh my goodness. Like I can't still can't run my restaurant or I still can't, I can't travel because I don't have a vaccine passport to show. Um, and these measures have been taken kind of under the guise of the greater good and public health, but what kind of health are we in if we cannot live freely and explore and make choices about our bodies that are informed and between a doctor and patient kind of expertise relationship rather than a political um, government body telling us what we can and can't do in order to live our lives and thrive 
And so that is just something that I think is really important to think about and not just to assume that, um, because somebody's an advocate for, for, for our freedoms and our liberties that we're a hater of, you know, a fellow human life. Cause it's actually the opposite in my opinion. I mean, I I'm advocating for people to live and, um, life is short. And so we have inherent risks by being human beings. Every single living organism is going to have some risk. And, um, ultimately we are mortal. And so, death is the end game. And I personally want to live really fully between now and then. So, um, and I want to have the freedom to take my kids to different countries and to travel and to, you know, to be, um, an active and participative human being in this thing we call life. So, uh, I'd like to kind of finish out with just what, what can we do? What can we do, you know, in empowering ourselves and empowering our communities and, um, and kind of moving forward? Because in my opinion, obviously, I don't think the vaccines are the answer. I mean, we've already heard from public health, you know, experts that, uh, you know, even if we vaccinate a huge portion of the population, everybody's still going to have to wear masks and they're still going to have to social distance and they're still not going to be able to gather in crowds. Um, so my question to that is what is the point? Um, if it's just minimizing symptoms, potentially creating asymptomatic carriers because they don't recognize they have symptoms and can still be infective and still transmit, then why would we need to have, you know, this, um, procedure done and have to show, um, some sort of documentation that we had had it because, it's not changing the course of the epidemic, in my opinion. So what can we do? Um, I find, I have found that um, reconnecting with, with community is one of the biggest answers. Um, people have asked me who kind of like think similarly to, to me and have some of the same thought processes to this whole thing they've asked like, how do you, how do you not get distraught and how do you keep going? And, um, how do you not feel isolated? And, and the answer to that is I've kind of found my tribe. And, um, I mean, it's similar to the tribe I've always had. Uh, and I've surrounded myself with even more people that, um, not just because they agree with me, that's, that's not the point, but they are willing to listen they're willing to hear what I have to say there and I'm willing to hear what they have to say. And we play devil's advocate with each other. Um, I have an old high school friend who shows up on my Facebook page sometimes and asks me hard questions. And I'm so grateful for him, even though our opinions differ. A lot of times we have this respectful and, you know, passionate dialogue. And I think that's great because it gets me thinking, it gets me researching more, it gets me wanting to make sure I have kind of the information that I want to disseminate so that people can learn and, and, and it makes me question things. And so, um, you know, that's just one example of how we can collectively kind of come together and have these dialogues again and the connection that we need as human beings um, on that note, I, we are social beings and I, 
I think the, the fallout of us being isolated from each other and being scared of each other somehow that we might get sick from somebody that we're inherently diseased. I think the fallout from that far outweighs the, the mild risk of, you know, catching a contagion from somebody. So when I run into people, heck yes, I'm going to hug them if they're comfortable with it. And I'm going to hug them for a long time. Um, we need that human connection. We need that physicality. We need that oxytocin to stimulate all of these, you know, important hormones in our bodies to keep us compassionate and connected and loved. And I'm always going to advocate for that. I don't, you know, public health policy is supposed to be a recommendation. It's not supposed to be law. And, um, we also have to factor in the individual health in that. And I think so much of the rhetoric has become, I'm doing this for you and I'm doing this for the greater good. And it's this kind of like weird, altruistic, um, almost righteous place. Um, and I don't find that to be true because I think we need to take care of our individual health. Just like, you know, when you fly and the, and the flight attendant says, put the oxygen mask on yourself before helping others. And I think I use that with my patients sometimes too, because the healthier we are as an individual, the healthier our families are. And ultimately the healthier our community is and our society for that matter, because when we get healthier and we make good choices for ourselves with our nutrition, with our exercise, with our time outdoors, with our human connection and our relationships that radiates out to our community and it's contagious, way more contagious than any pathogen that we might experience. And so in my opinion, that is the answer is coming together with compassion and love for each other and seeing each other from this place of reverence and respect, um, and curiosity, you know, so that we can understand the perspectives of all the people that we interact with on a regular basis. And, um, yeah, I think that, that, it's contagious, like I said. And I think that when we come from a place of optimizing our own individual health, not only does that radiate to our families and our communities and our immediate society or even the, the broader society, but it certainly impacts the planet. And we must, we must get back in harmony with our earth. Um, we need to get our hands in the dirt. We need to start growing things for ourselves and bringing our resources back to kind of that local collective way because, uh, and kind of like restore the village in my opinion, because, um, you know, if we're relying on resources from across the globe, then anything makes that vulnerable. And we saw it happen this year, didn't we? When transportation was shut down and, you know, a lot of employees were laid off. Uh, we saw that vulnerability in our food chain and not to mention the toxic piece of our food chain and, and kind of this industrialized, um, agribusiness that's, 
um, taking over and, and that's not a healthy venture anyway. You know, those kinds of ways of farming, if you can call them that (laughs) agribusiness, um, are not providing nutritious food for us, which again, circles back to that individual health. So I encourage you to take care of your own health, prioritize your own health and that of your family. And well, number one, it lowers your risk of any sort of pathogen, but it's certainly of COVID and the fallout of it. We know that vitamin D is one of the essential nutrients um, for protecting you against getting infected in the first place. And then also from um, the potential fallout of the disease and mortality. It decreases mortality too in some studies. So that's kind of a no-brainer. It's inexpensive. It's available. It's safe. It's well-studied. It's um, relevant to other functions in our bodies like um, you know, decreases the risk of diabetes and obesity and cancer and improves anxiety and depression, um, and, you know, mental health. It keeps our bones sturdy and strong. I mean, the, the ramifications of having optimal vitamin D are like amazing. So why wouldn't we do that? And it's so available and so easy to, um, administer and supplement. So, Um, let's start taking care of our nutrition because bare bones nutrition, uh, has been shown to really improve the outcome of people who have, you know, contracted the virus and then had subsequent COVID. So, uh, let's do that, please. Um, physical connection. I already talked about, I think that's so, so, so important. Find your tribe and get physical with them, you know, hug them and be with them and, um, share your experiences and your concerns and your heart and your thoughts. Um, get out on the trail. If that feels more, I mean, I'm not saying don't do things that don't make you feel safe. If you feel more comfortable with some space, that's okay too. Um, just find ways to connect with other human beings and you will feel, you know, that validation of who you are and you'll feel that sense of normalcy and, um, and humanity once again, cause that's really what it all boils down to. Um, and then, you know, sleeping well and sleeping regular hours is really, uh, very much important for our immune system breathing. And that's the ironic thing now that we're so many of us have to be masked. Um, but breathing deeply out in nature in particular is very, very safe. We really don't see a lot of asymptomatic transmission with this virus, unlike some other historical, uh, you know, pathogens that have come through where there might be asymptomatic transmission. There's been a lot of studies there. There's been several pretty large studies that have shown very little, if any asymptomatic transmission. Sometimes there's some pre-symptomatic transmission where people are about to get sick and then they might spread it the day before or something like that. But to assume that everybody's infected and passing this along um, without symptoms is, is really not the case for this, um, pathogen in particular, this virus. So, um, so breathe and breathe easy and breathe deeply and, um, especially breathe fresh, fresh air outside as much as you can, um, choose love over fear. I talk about that a lot. Fear is really damaging to many functions of our body, certainly our immune function and, um, 
you know, turn off the news. Like it's a, it's a live stream of chaos and, uh, fear-based information. Um, you can stay informed and keep your fingers on the pulse of things without having to be inundated with the drama of it all. So find a balance on that. And, um, you know, take a break, take a break when you need to get outside, move your body, uh, convene with other people, you know, have a cup of tea, whatever it is that makes you feel rested and rejuvenated, take advantage of those kinds of things and choose love over fear. I mean, we cannot live our lives in fear because that's not living. And I really want people to choose life and living and freedom and, um, getting after things so that they can be their best self. And that is ultimately what's going to heal us individually and us as a community and our planet and advocate, speak up, like use your voice. So much of what's happening right now is silencing and discrediting and, um, you know, just devaluing human beings. Uh, it takes courage to speak from the heart and it takes a lot of gumption to say things that might be controversial, but that you believe in, um, connect, find your tribe, find ways to feel supported in that because you're definitely not alone. I have made some really cool connections this year that I never would have imagined. And I'm so grateful for them. And they have made me feel like a normal human being. And that's really valuable. And, uh, we all have that available to us. We just have to, that's why you have to start speaking up and, and talking about what's important to you and what you're concerned about and what you value. Because as you speak up, other people start to find you essentially, and they feel the courage to do the same. So we all need those tribes around us. We all need the village. We all need our planet to be um, helping us heal. And we in turn can help our planet heal as well. So thank you for your time, for your feedback, for your open-mindedness, for your heart and, um, for supporting me and my endeavors here. Uh, and I just wish you all the ultimate, um, livelihood and life and health and support, um, that you need to thrive. So get after it, like I always like to say, and do the things that make you feel excited about life and passionate, um, connect with others. And I very much look forward to seeing you uh, soon and to speaking with you about more important topics as we move forward. Take care. Thank you for listening to Dr. Michelle's Wild Warrior Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please like, subscribe, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information on Dr. Michelle, please visit drmichellem.com and follow her on Instagram at ethereal underscore fighter.